Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. If you've read the news or been on the internet at all this year, you've probably come across the hashtag MeToo, the rallying cry of a movement aimed at calling out the harassment and... If you've read the news or been on the internet at all this year, you've probably come across the hashtag MeToo, the rallying cry of a movement aimed at calling out the harassment and abuse men in positions of power have perpetuated against mostly silent women for years without consequence. But what began as a takedown of some of the most powerful abusers in our country, the Bill Cosbys and Harvey Weinsteins, has lately been moving into domestic territory, as women are holding more and more of the abusive men in their lives publicly accountable for the hurt they've caused. Social attitudes are changing, with champions of the Me Too movement raising awareness about the prevalence of domestic violence in American households. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, one in four women and one in seven men will be the victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetimes. Statistically, an estimated 70% of this violence will go unreported. The numbers are, frankly, staggering, and part of the reason why writer Kelly Sundberg has chosen to tell her story in a new book, Goodbye, Sweet Girl, A Story of Domestic Abuse and Survival. Adapted from a 2014 viral essay, It Will Look Like a Sunset, Goodbye Sweet Girl follows Sunberg as she recounts the most difficult years of marriage to her abuser and the courage it took for her to make the final leap to safety. Here on the New Books Network today to discuss her debut memoir, please welcome Kelly Sunberg. Kelly, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about your uh, debut memoir, Goodbye Sweet Girl, Um, And so I guess the first question I have is about an essay that you wrote uh, four years ago in 2014 that was published in Guernica called It Will Look Like a Sunset uh, that went viral. So was that sort of the beginning of this project for you or was it something that you'd been working on for a while at that point? Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think I'd been working on the project for a while at that point, but I didn't realize that this was how it was going to evolve. I, during my MFA, I had written a lot of essays about childhood and particularly about the world of adults as perceived through the eyes of a child. And those essays tended to be very dark and very menacing. And I didn't understand at the time that what I was doing was I was I was being physically abused while I was writing those essays and I wasn't aware that, that I was really kind of writing my own story in, in essay form. And so when I worked on the memoir, which was a continuation of the essay, it will look like a sunset. I found that a lot of that childhood stuff, the, the menace from childhood and the kind of early formative experiences I had that made me, maybe comfortable with discomfort were really relevant to, to the memoir. So, so the memoir is more than the essay in that it really looks at, at the entirety of my life. And so the full title of the book is goodbye, sweet girl, a story of domestic violence and survival. 
Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what is domestic or intimate partner violence? Um, what are the signs? How does it manifest? Yeah, this is a big subject. And I do want to make a point of saying that emotional abuse and, and emotional partner violence is every bit as damaging as physical. And I think that the two are really related. So what I was interested in looking at in my book really is, is the process of grooming. The book doesn't get um, physically violent until towards the end. And that's because I wanted the reader to understand and feel with me how I had become kind of indoctrinated into thinking that I abused or deserved the abuse. So I described it sometimes to friends as, as though it's as though I was in a cult and he was the cult leader. And so there were a lot of processes that went along with that. Um, in the beginning, he, he made me feel really special. Like I was this uniquely special person who was, who was created just for him. And even as I hear that, those words, it makes me cringe but like a lot of women in our culture, that was a narrative that I had seen in media and on television and that I had hoped for. So it seemed as though I was getting what I wanted. And then he put me on a pedestal, which is another part of the process. So, you know, he would tell me that I was so amazing. Uh, and the problem with being put on the pedestal is that you have nowhere to go but down from there. And then as he was getting angry at me or as I was falling off of the pedestal, then he would completely devalue me. So it was this alternation between, between lavish praise and extreme criticism. And it was disorienting. And I didn't know, I didn't know which to believe. For instance, something he would say a lot, he would say terrible things to me when he was angry. And then when I would be upset, he would say, well, you can't hold the things that I say when I'm angry against me. Those aren't the things that I mean. And that was so confusing to me. And I remember him asking me, well, do you mean the things that you say when you're angry at me? And I was thinking, yeah, absolutely. Should I say them? Probably not. But I, but I mean them. I'm sincere. I'm earnest in those feelings. And so he kind of presented it as we just had this different way of viewing the world. At one point, he even said, you just value honesty more than I do. Um, after he'd been lying to me for a period and I was actually Googling, is honesty something that everyone values? Because I was at that point, I trusted my own feelings so little that that I believed him, that I just valued honesty too much, that my my expectations were unrealistic. And and so that kind of emotional disorientation, it's it stripped me of my my own identity or or my own kind of humanity. So that by the time he physically abused me. I just didn't have the, it wasn't that I wasn't strong. I was strong. I just really believed by then that I deserved it. And, and it took a long time. Really, it took getting out of the marriage and having therapy and time and perspective to realize that I didn't deserve it. Um, so then through this process, so you were married for how many years? 
We were married for almost nine years. For almost nine years. And so when did you realize yourself? When did you start to sort of trust yourself and think that maybe maybe I am in a kind of domestically violent situation? Honestly, not until the very end. Um, so he wasn't physically abusive with me for two years into the marriage. And then after that, it would be very, very rare. It was an outlier. So I would think that that it wasn't going to happen again. And he didn't get regularly physically abusive until the last uh, year or so of the marriage. And at that time, he acknowledged that what he was doing was wrong. And and he and he went through this whole host of steps to try. He, he took anger management, which I've since learned is uh, counterintuitive for a abusers actually. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize, but, and he got therapy and it seemed like he was trying. So I thought that we could make it work. And then towards the end of the marriage, I really had had this realization that if he didn't kill me, I was going to die just from stress. Like I, I was, physically a complete mess, not just because he was abusing me, but because when your body is in fight or flight all the time, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to, to be healthy. And so I reached out to a therapist. I showed her the bruises. That was the first time I'd told anyone what he was doing. And I told her I didn't want to leave that. I just wanted to stay safe. And she, but she, she kind of, she held me. I, I cried. I didn't even know her at all. She's still my therapist now. She's kind of more like a friend now, mm-hmm. but I wept and she held me and I left there thinking, well, I can make this better with him. But a month later I left him and Liz, my therapist has told me since that when she saw me at that first session, she didn't think that a tidal wave would get me away from him. And a month later, I, I had left. So I've come to realize that once it became apparent to me that I was being abused, once I really admitted that to myself, I did get out pretty quickly. So then um, what does it mean to be a domestic abuse survivor? So how do you, as a survivor of domestic abuse, um, define those who embody that term? Well, I don't know that there, I think that's a very individual definition for, for each survivor because, I mean, I struggle with the word survivor. I, I use it anyway, but I struggle with it because it's a really broad term that re, that um, refers to a, a collection of individuals. And, and so one thing that I, I have a problem with is that I feel like oftentimes once we've entered into survivor territory, we're no longer people in a lot of people's eyes. And I am in many ways changed from what happened to me. And the book is, is a nod to that, that, that I'll never probably get that girl back again, Mm -hmm. but I'm also still very much an individual who has more complexity to me than just my experience of surviving trauma. I, I have a sense of humor. I'm a mother. I have friends. I 
like to go to the gym. You know, I, I'm just a person like any other person, but am I informed by the trauma that, that happened to me? Yes, definitely. So then, um, had you ever written about, uh, your situation or domestic violence before goodbye, sweet girl. And before it will look like, uh, a sunset. No, it will look like a sunset was the first thing that I wrote about it. I actually wrote, it will look like a sunset in one long night. Um, in, in April, I left him in November. I wrote it in April. So, so there was not a lot of time between when I left him and I wrote that essay and then the essay underwent extensive revisions, but the first draft of it, I I wrote in a burst in one night. And I think part of the reason that essay captures the disorientation of abuse so well is because while I was writing it, I was still disoriented. And so there's the mantra that, that writing should come after the therapy. But I will say I, I wrote that essay before I really had had enough therapy to understand what was happening to me. And I don't regret it because I think I was able to capture more authentically the experience of the marriage. Because now when I look back at the marriage, I I'm not as sympathetic to him. And I don't, you know, there were in that essay, there were loving moments and and they were genuine, but I don't feel love for him anymore. And, and I have a bit in my mind, at least, recast the narrative of what he did to me, but I didn't feel that I could do that in the essay or in the book and be true to the person who I was while I was in the marriage. So for example, I think sometimes readers read the book and and they feel like I'm making excuses for him. I've, I've read some reviews that have said that, well, present day me makes no excuses for my ex-husband but if I was going to show what I was experiencing during the marriage, then then I had to show the rationalizations that I was making at the time. Yes. And I think that the essay does such an excellent job of portraying what it actually feels like. And that is probably a big part of the reason why it was so popular. People really, really responded to that essay at the time it was published. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that felt to see people reaching out and saying, thank you for writing this. And um, I'm going through a similar experience and things like that. Yeah, it was incredibly validating. And, and it was also very empowering. I, I will say I left the marriage really feeling quite broken. And having an, an experience of, of being vulnerable, and getting a response that was almost unequivocally support. I don't think anyone responded badly to that essay. Actually, I I didn't, people would ask me like, well, have you gotten hate mail? And no, I never received anything like that. Um, So I think it really kind of accelerated my growth as a person because I had taken this chance with being vulnerable and putting my most shameful secrets out there and people had responded with kindness and support and it just made it easier for me to continue to be vulnerable. And I honestly think that vulnerability is 
is so important in our culture in terms of, of growing and healing as people from, from any kind of trauma. I think that actually one of the hallmarks of abusers is that they don't like being vulnerable. They're not willing to be vulnerable. And so if I'm going to try to live my life in direct opposition to that, then I, I want to live my life with as much vulnerability as possible. And so, yeah, I think after It Will Look Like a Sunset, I wrote a series of essays about the abuse and it just became more and more comfortable. And and then I placed my book, Goodbye, Sweet Girl, on a proposal. And, and I wrote Goodbye, Sweet Girl in, in really a, a short period. I think it was a short period of time to write an entire memoir, but... Um, but I had been thinking about it for a long time and a lot of the material I'd, I'd had in one form or another and other things I had written. And you also did, you have a blog and did you begin that blog after it will look like a sunset came out? Uh, I began the blog after Guernica had accepted it will look like a sunset, but they hadn't published it yet. So it was in that kind of that territory where the essay had been accepted, but it hadn't been released. And actually, so in January of um, 2014, uh, my ex-husband went to court for his domestic battery charges and the, the system just completely failed me. So I was not even told that he had a court date the assistant prosecutor, I had contacted the assistant prosecutor, called, tried to talk to her, and she'd never contacted me. Unfortunately, she did not read his file, which is actually a really common occurrence. And so when she got to court, the judge was tired of he, his lawyer had continued asking for continuances and the judge was tired of the continuances and told the prosecutor, you need to make a decision, either dismiss the charges or go to trial. Well, the prosecutor had not read the file, so she really didn't know how to make a decision. <laughs> so it still makes me so angry. So the victim's advocate called me. I was getting ready to go into a meeting at work. I had my son with me because he was on a snow day from school. Uh, and she said, the prosecutor wants to dismiss or go to trial. What do you want? She thinks we should dismiss. And I said, I didn't want that. Uh, but then I went into the meeting and I was sitting there with my son, who at that time was, was only eight and looking at him and thinking about the fact that if I went to a trial, it would be, it would be really stressful for both me and for my son and for everyone. And so I actually left the meeting and I called the, the victim's advocate and I told her that it was fine if they dismissed the charges and they, they did. And the, his only sentence was that he had to write me a letter of apology. Hmm. So when I got home, I realized, and one, one other thing I left out there is the only thing I had wanted was for him to take batter's intervention courses, because those are different than anger management and, and batter's don't usually change, but batter's intervention courses have a better history of success. And the victims at the victim advocate had told me he had taken batter's intervention courses. 
when I got home, I realized he hadn't, and I was really upset. And I just realized I had been, you know, my, the person who had assaulted me had gone to court and no one had even asked me what I wanted to happen. So I, I started my blog. I, it's, it was titled apology, not accepted. And it was really at that time, just committed to talking about my experience with the justice system. And it was really just for like my friends and family and then when the essay was published at Guernica, I gave them the link to the blog kind of on a whim. And then all of a sudden it had a big readership and I had a lot of followers and, and I still blog, but over time it has really evolved from, from my experience with the justice system, just to kind of more, more mundane experiences with being a single mom, moving on from divorce, um, stuff like that. And was the blog sort of instrumental? Because you talked earlier about sort of this um, relief in vulnerability and being able to sort of talk it out, write it out. Um, how did the blog sort of help you through your writing process? The blog helped me a ton because the blog kind of became this space where I could just emotionally vomit and not have to worry about sending it for publication I really just wanted, I'm not a journaler in general, and um, which is not the most useful thing for a memoirist, but I just don't love to journal. But I found with the blog, each post is themed on something. A lot of times I would have an idea, like when I was driving my son to West Virginia for the weekend or something, and I could go home and I could write a blog post in three, four hours, upload it, and then have have readers. And and there was something really kind of freeing about about the lack of policing that I was doing with the blog. And and then the writing actually in the blog is very different from the writing in my book or the writing in my essays. And I I have people that I, I can tell prefer reading the blog to to my more literary writing. But but really the blog was it was therapy. And, you know, we have, we always say in nonfiction like that writing shouldn't be therapy. Well, the blog was just my therapy. That's really what it was. But that said, it did bring a lot of readers to me. When my editor chose to acquire my book, she went and read the blog and, and she said, I remember her words were, I can tell that you're the real deal. And, and so even though it was therapy, it did have practical uh, and good results. But that that was not my goal. I was never using the blog to like build platform or anything like that. I really did just want to talk about what I was going through. So uh, tell me a little bit about your writing process just in general. And so it must have been difficult just emotionally to be writing about all of this, especially at the beginning when it was more fresh, and you were still sort of dealing with the aftermath of the divorce and so on. So how was that for you? You know, yeah, in some ways it was difficult. It wasn't as difficult when it was fresh, actually, as when it was old. And I get a lot of people who say it must have been so difficult. And, and I often, I just realized this as you were asking that. I usually just say, yeah, it was really difficult. But in a way, it wasn't because my life was really difficult. Everything was really difficult. So the writing about it was no more difficult than what I was actually 
living, which sounds kind of dark, but, but actually I think I often felt like when I wrote about it, it was a way of kind of getting it outside of me, putting it on the page. And the story was no longer something that was controlling me. It was something that I was in control of. So, so in the beginning, I think the writing only felt good. It was, it just felt like I was finally able to tell my story and, and it felt so freeing working on the book towards the end was very painful because at that point I was having to relive stuff that I really had thought I had somewhat healed from and moved on from and, and having to go back to those moments it was for lack of a better word, re-traumatizing. So, so yeah, I think the assumption that it's difficult, some, some aspects were, but some, some weren't, some just felt really good. Yeah. And now you have this amazing memoir that you wrote. Um, How does it feel to have written such a hotly anticipated book? People have been waiting for this to come out for a long time and everybody's really excited I mean, it feels amazing. The week before the book came out, I was completely dreading it. I was depressed and I was, I cried a couple times for reasons I couldn't explain. I told my, my former dissertation advisor that I just knew I had set myself up for disappointment because my dreams were infinite and, and, and the ability and the ways that I could be disappointed were also infinite. And then the book came out and, you know, it's still very fresh, but so far it hasn't been disappointing at all. It's, it's just exceeded anything that I thought it could have. I, I didn't expect it to be so well reviewed and I didn't expect it. I mean, just, just the hallmarks of kind of like commercial success. And I, I don't know how the sales are. I have not asked anyone and I really don't want to think about that, (laughs) but I didn't expect it to be in like O magazine, for example, you know, and, and so it was really wonderful. And I, I have been reading the Goodreads reviews and the Amazon reviews, which everyone says you shouldn't do. And there are certainly bad reviews in there. There are like a lot of bad reviews, but I guess the, the advantage to having an MFA and a PhD is that I have learned in the past, well, in eight years of graduate education, not to take criticism very personally. So even even those bad reviews, for the most part, they kind of sting for a minute, but they don't. They've not been like wounding or damaging me in ways. My parents have been supportive, which I was really stressed about. It's just been. It's just been better than than I expected. And, you know, all all writers dream of having a moment like this. And I would be, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the right word, but like, I feel it's not pride that's saying this, but like absolute humility that says that like, I never expected to have a book come out with Harper or to have anything like this. So it's really, 
just something that I'm grateful for and, and in awe of, and it's stressful too. It is stressful. I'm having to really work on, on kind of trying to be balanced and, and not take, not take things to heart too much, not get too excited about possibilities and stuff like that, because emotional roller coasters are not good for me. Um, they're probably not for anyone, but I think anyone who has a kind of trauma history like mine is wary of emotional roller coasters. But, but yeah, I'm just really grateful. I, I think I've been very fortunate. Um, and people have been really, really receptive to this book overall. I mean, even if there might be some stray sort of negative reactions on Amazon and Goodreads, it does seem like the the big reviews that are coming out are overwhelmingly positive. Um And so I had a question just about, do you think that the general public is more receptive to books with subjects like Goodbye, Sweet Girl than they would have been maybe 10 or 20 years ago? Yeah, I I definitely think so. And I think that Me Too probably in a way has, the Me Too movement has probably in a way caused that. But I think that our culture was working up to the Me Too movement for a long time before it actually happened. I mean, we had this catalyst that was a hashtag, but, but just the fact that Harper felt the need to acquire my book and recognize the value in that story shows that, that there were already people out there thinking about these subjects and wanting to, to um, strip the, the curtains off of these issues. I remember at the end of 2014, Rebecca Solnit wrote this piece for The Guardian, and she said that 2014 was the year of women telling their stories. And and it very much was because, you know, my essay came out that year, but so many other people's stories came out. And I think that we were all just getting really fed up and we're, we're more fed up now because actually things have in many ways gotten worse, but I don't think that collectively women want to be silenced anymore. I think that's something that most of us can agree on. Mm -hmm. So you talk about me too. um, And so the book, you began the book before the me too movement really started. And so it's really sort of in that same vein, that same wave as the me too movement. Where do you see that going, not only for your book or for your career, for what you're interested in writing about, but maybe more at large. What are your thoughts about that? I really don't know. I felt a lot of anxiety about the Me Too movement because I do think that historically, when women have made a lot of progress in our culture, there has often been some kind of backlash. And and so... I, I worry about what that backlash might be, but at the same time, we can't make progress without, without fighting for it. And so I hope that this is heralding some really dramatic change. We need to have dramatic change in terms of 
bodily autonomy, not just in the ways that we feel safe or that we should be able to feel safe, but also having control over making our own medical decisions, having good health care. So much of women's safety is is not just affected by the violence of men, but but by the institutions in our country. And so I hope that that women's safety becomes something that we really think about and and reflect upon in the next few years. But right now we're we're in a crisis moment and so so I feel like we're just putting out fires as they arise and and it's hard to know yet what kind of change is going to come out of out of this movement. So what are some um, writers or books that inspired you while you were writing that inspire you now that maybe touch on these sort of same subjects? Uh, A book that inspired me a lot in terms of just kind of being loose with chronology was the chronology of water by Lydia Yuknevik. And I just really, she kind of went back and forth in this really beautiful way. And, and it made me realize that trauma narratives oftentimes aren't linear and that a linear narrative is not always the best way to, to portray trauma. I've always been um, a big admirer of Rebecca Solnitz and have read a lot of her political writing, as well as her her kind of more memoiristic pieces. And I had read The Faraway Nearby shortly before I wrote Goodbye, Sweet Girl. And The Faraway Nearby is just such a beautifully written book. She has such an attention to language. And so I really saw that, too, as, as a, an example of being able to tell a painful story in a beautiful way. And I've been very impacted also by the work of Roxanne Gay, who I think her voice is really authentic and and really earnest. And I just think that's something I've aspired to do in my own writing. And so I had a question, too, just about um, at the end of the book, in the acknowledgments, you write to all the women out there who are thinking about leaving, do it, jump. Um, so what is it that you're hoping that readers and maybe especially those who know someone who's experiencing domestic violence or who are victims themselves, um, to come away sort of from your book in the context of the Me Too movement and um, some of the other voices like Rebecca Solnit and Roxane Gay that you mentioned, understanding? I think that, so at one point someone asked me what I would have told myself during the marriage or what I would tell, if I could now tell the person I was in the marriage, something, what would I tell them that woman? And I, I would tell her not to be so afraid because I definitely didn't lose the marriage or didn't leave the marriage because I was afraid. I was afraid of change. I was afraid of making the wrong decision. I I was afraid to jump. And, and the truth is that I did jump and things got infinitely better And I think that by the time someone's thinking that maybe they should leave, they probably should leave because I don't think that we, we hit that point lightly, most of us. And of course I I can't generalize for everyone, Mm -hmm. but, but I know for me, I went well, way longer than I should have before I jumped. And, 
that phrase actually came from someone had commented on my blog and I'll never know who it was, but she wrote about that. It's so hard to leave. And she said, in her case, a window opened and she jumped. And I feel like that's what happened with me too. A window opened and I just jumped. And so I think the idea, the notion of jumping is that you really have to take thoughts and worries about what's going to happen after the jump out of your mind, because those will paralyze you. You have to just jump and just trust that it's going to be okay. And I just think that, you know, the abuse was absolutely his fault. I was in no way responsible for what he did to me, but I felt weak when he was abusing me, but I know that I wasn't now when I look back and I know that, that the fact that I was willing to jump is the thing that saved me. So, so yeah, what I want women to get out of the book or out of the me too movement or any of that is that we just have to be willing to take chances. Got to be willing to jump. We've got to be willing to jump. Yeah. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being here and talking about your new book, Goodbye, Sweet Girl, today. Thank you so much for having me. For more information about combating domestic violence and for resources, please visit thehotline.org. My name is Zoe Bossier, and I'm a host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.